Welcome back to Due South. I'm Leonita Inge. I visit Chapel Hill a lot, attending conferences, celebrations, demonstrations, and sometimes having deep conversations, or I'm just in town for dinner. There is one person I seem to always see standing in a corner with a little notebook, taking notes. It's 31-year-old Cortland Gilliam, Chapel Hill's Poet Laureate. Really, Cortland is more than just a poet. He gained notoriety and grew his voice as a scholar at UNC Chapel Hill and an activist, using his voice to speak at anti-racist rallies. Uh, my name is Cortland Gilliam. Um, I'm a doctoral student in the School of Education here at UNC. This protest targeted campus police and how some students felt if they spoke out, they were harassed. Um, and then I'd like to thank everyone gathered here today for making a decision. Um, the decision to care enough, enough to be present in solidarity and support, enough to want to learn more, enough to want to build community and forge new futures at this institution. Um, we face this fundamental Portland makes sure every word counts. The safety of, of the campus community has never been a top priority for this university. Um, safety was certainly not a concern this past year when nonviolent anti-racist students were tear gassed, body slammed, stalked on the way to class, and otherwise brutalized. Turning a mirror on police brutality is a reoccurring theme in Cortland's work. This poem is titled White Noise. He wrote it after Philando Castile, a black man, was shot and killed by a Minnesota police officer during a traffic stop in 2016. There's a wailing in the streets. And at this point, I'm unsure whether it's from the cries of black mothers or just the sirens of police. I hear only wretched pleas shrilling through the night in agony, in fear, in defiance, demanding attention, demanding an ear, recognition or respect, issuing caution even, as if to say, be advised, hurt lives here. A voice singing out into the darkness that black lives matter, another maintaining that blue lives do too. To which I always reply, the only blue bodies I have ever known were once black and are now lifeless. What blue life do you speak of? I must say your words and thoughts and actions are wiser than your years. I've noticed that. So that means either you have a lot to do or you have a lot to live up to. Mm, so mm. how's it going in your um, in your new role in Chapel Hill? Mm. Um, appreciate the kind words. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to kind of stepping into it and continuing to see, you know, myself grow and evolve. Um, but it really, it's been good. It's just been very busy. And um, I had to remember that I'm still a graduate student. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I, how are you going to do both really? I mean, um, I know your undergraduate degree is from UNC Chapel Hill mm -hmm. and now you're in, a, in graduate school there. Mm -hmm. And did I hear your, your advisors and professors say, come on now, you got to get on, get on, get it moving. That's but, right. But, yeah. but, but you know, you've spent time in Chapel Hill, you said more than any other place. This is, it's really home for you. Yeah, it has become home, which is, you know, I think a lot of times people associate home with, you know, their childhood or where they grew up. Um, but, you know, my formative years were spent, you know, as a military kid, um, moving around a lot. And so for, for me, 
Um, home has always just been, you know, people and places, uh, you know, a handful. And um, but but re- more recently through adulthood, it's become Chapel Hill. Um, that's what I've known the longest. And it's been really cool to be able to um, see myself grow in this town from my experience with the town and relationship to the town as an undergraduate, which was very much confined to the campus um, and living in that bubble. Um, and then slowly kind of seeing that bubble kind of, you know, dissolve or, you know, be popped or what have you when I came back to the town in 2016 to start my PhD program and then kind of forming a completely new relationship with the university, which was a lot more antagonistic than my previous relationship. Um, and then also, you know, or at least I'll say oppositional, I don't say antagonistic, but, um, but then also just starting to see Chapel Hill as, you know, um, existing beyond campus. And so deepening connections to um, community and different folks um, in community and organizations and community, um, particularly the black community of Chapel Hill really started to form roots there um, as I was still, you know, pushing the campus and getting involved with organizing and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's been really cool just to see North Carolina become a home um, when it hasn't been for most of my life, although my folks are originally from the state. So it's almost been like a homecoming of sorts. Yeah, like you're a, coming back. Yeah, a little bit of a coming back, yeah. I know. And, you know, you mentioned Chapel Hill as a bubble, but I hope I get this right. I remember a late U.S. senator from North Carolina, Jesse Helms, he mm. didn't call Chapel Hill a bubble. Mm-mm. He kind of called it a zoo. Mm. You know, animals in a zoo. You know, like mm-hmm. I think he said something... Um, in relation to um, the the zoo that was being built in Asheboro, he was oh. like, "We don't we don't need a yeah. a zoo in <laughs> Asheboro. Just put a <laughs> fence around Chapel Hill." Chapel Hill. Have one. Huh. And so, hmm. really, it seems it's Chapel Hill, and your, you know, going to school there is that what really sparked your activism as a as a young person? And do you remember when you first sort of found your voice? Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it has. And I think, you know, I, I'm in agreement that it's Chapel Hill itself is not a bubble. I think sometimes people think the campus, you know, is a bubble. Um, but when you see, you know, the money that flows into the campus, the interests that flow through the campus, you really see how it's connected to kind of broader, uh, like the state and the, you know, the politics of the state. Um, in many ways, I think, you know, Chapel Hill becomes um, I think before I've called it a little bit of like a, a microcosm of America, you know, all of the all of the, um, you know, the, the projections of a progressivism and all of the, um, you know, the marketing of like this is the southern part of heaven and, you know, all of those things, um, you know. Yeah, it's all of that, but it's still not that diverse, though. Um, but I it's think not. About that it's, yeah, that's the facade. Yes. Yeah, that's the lie. Okay. And so to, to your question, when I started to realize that um, and realize that all of that messaging was, you know you know, very strategic, but also not necessarily honest. Um, I think it really came, you know, there were points in undergrad where I had, you know, really charged racial experiences, you know. Um, I've had, you know, white friends who were, you know, more or less quote unquote progressive um, or so they believe themselves to be, but who would ask me, you know, can I use the N-word? And, you know, I had to have that conversation with them. Um, but then, you know, I had a moment when I was on Franklin Street where someone told me to go back to Africa, like, so I had very, you know, charged racial moments that kind of um, started to spark consciousness and allowed me to understand myself and my positionality in a different way. Um, and then I'll just say that when I came back to grad school 
it was just a deepening of the practice of 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 um being active or being participatory in the politics of a space um and you know i i don't often like to refer to myself as an activist per se because i know of people who live the life of an organizer and it's you know it's a daily live thing um i do just see myself as someone who's able to contribute um, in the ways that I know best, which is usually through my writing or my voice. Um, so I really discovered that voice, I would say, in grad school um, when I saw the campus starting to organize around um, removing the Confederate statue, Silent Sam. And I had a lot of graduate student friends of mine who were very active and I would come out to rallies and um, eventually, you know, I started getting invited out to things to share poetry. And so um, that became kind of a way of me understanding that, you know, my voice has an effect um, and, you know, um, I can use my voice and my poetry and my art to really help further a collective conversation. Um, yeah. You know. Well, give <laughs> us give us an example mm -hmm. of of some of that, you know, because like you say, you found your voice, mm -hmm. um, your surroundings help shape that voice. And then people wanted to listen. Yeah. So I would say the the moment that I think that that where where I think that manifested or, you know, came to life was probably the uh, right before the fall semester of um, uh, 2018, uh, there was a rally in support of uh, Emil Little, um, formerly Maya Little, um, this is the graduate student who poured a mixture of their uh, blood and paint on the statue in an act of civil disobedience um, and then received ARNA court charges, federal charges after that. There was a rally in support of them, but then also to kind of, again, reframe and contextualize the statue, not as this marker of, you know, heritage, but like, you know, heritage that's also bound up with racial terror and, and anti-black violence, et cetera. Um, and at that rally, a graduate peer a uh, friend, colleague of mine, Jerry Wilson, and I um, announced that we would be starting our own protest um, where we uh, committed to wearing nooses while on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill for as long as the statue stood. And so at that rally, we both read speeches and then we donned these um, white, you know, in Carolina blue nooses. There were these white nooses, ropes with Carolina blue taping. Um, and we donned that and really kind of just made this point that, you know, the statue is about racial violence. It's about racial terror. And while it's very, you know, when you're talking about the bronze and the concrete of the statue, it's easy to get lost in this conversation of heritage and legacy, et cetera. But like when people look at a, a noose, they know exactly what that represents. And so we were trying to kind of connect the symbolism and say that that statue is, is in effect a hanging noose on this campus 24-7. And so um, we wanted to do that. We wanted to do it in a way that was mobile. We could move throughout campus and people could touch point with that history. But I would say that was the moment, I think, that solidified a lot of it for me. Um, and because that, uh, you know, that action, um, you know, basically it was it was very short lived. It was a short lived kind of protest at first, um, because after we did that, that same night, the statue was toppled. <laughs> um, so like three hours after um, making that announcement, you know, um, anti-racist activists, students, um, and community members pulled down the statue. And then, you know, I had people running past me saying like, oh, you can take your noose off now. Like we did it. You know what I mean? Wow. Like that we beat racism kind of, uh, feeling. And I was like, I don't think you understood the point of the protest and of the speech because 
yes, we did link it to the statue, but we wanted to talk about what's born in the bodies of black people, whether they're students or faculty or grounds workers or staff persons, um, as they move throughout this very white space where there's a culture of white supremacy. Um, so we kind of wrestled with, okay, do we actually suspend the protest or do we keep going into the you know fall semester? But we ended up suspending it temporarily. Um, so yeah, for about three months. And then in December of 2018, when the board of trustees announced their plan to build a, you know, quote, educational center and house the statue, um, essentially re-erecting it, but, you know, under the guises of a museum, we kind of decided to re, uh, reenact the protest. And so from December 2018 through, um, I'd say around September of 2019, every day that we were on campus, we were wearing nooses. And so that was a very long engagement. And I think that just just blew open my perspective around a lot of things. Um, and, and what does it mean to, again, embody certain kind of political issues, embody political practices. Um, and that bled into my poetry as well um, and just motivated me to continue to use my writing and anything that I create um, to, um, yeah, just further kind of conversations around different different things. Yeah. So as a as a black man, I guess, mm. what did your father say about you wearing the noose around your neck? Yeah, yeah. At that's, school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great question. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, both both my, you know, father and mother, they were just concerned. You know, they were like, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily, um, I think they understood the, the gravity of the action. Um, but I don't necessarily know they understood why I was doing it, right, or why I felt that was necessary. Um, and part of that is, you know, I don't think they have lived in Chapel Hill and understand that space, although they're from rural North Carolina. So I don't think, you know, racism's not, you know, I don't think anything they're not familiar with, of course. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I guess with my with my father, I don't, he, he was supportive. Um, but again, there was still kind of a, a, a questioning of, you know, to him, I think it felt like a distraction. He's like, you're here to get your degree. Um, you're here to, you know, get this PhD and go on to, you know, be a professor, or do whatever you want to do with that. Um, and I think it was hard for him to see this as part of the work, in my view, a part of the work of deep study um, and, you know, actually taking in your, your environment and the spaces that you're moving through and having some kind of influence there. Um, do you still have the news? I do. It's in my closet. Yeah, at home. Um interesting thing about that I carried it with me this is part of like the healing after that protest was it was in my car for like I want to say like six months after <laughs> like into the first year of the pandemic like six months after we suspended the action um and I don't know why I, it was it took so long to let go of that um but then I was finally like you know why am I carrying this this around still I'm not engaging in that protest and put it in my closet but yeah it's I still have it um but yeah I want you to read something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, or even not if you're mm-hmm. not reading it, it's on yeah, the top of your head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, and maybe this piece is actually kind of a good piece for this conversation. Um, the only setup I'll say is this is something that um, I used to kind of remind me, you know, remind myself of the importance of not getting lost in the monotony of the day to day, and that there's always opportunity to engage and and um yeah so this is a piece entitled purpose it's easy to forget 
It's easy to settle into rhythm and routine, revel in complacency and backfloat from preoccupation to distraction. And not only is it easy, I think sometimes we actually want to. I think sometimes we actually want to forget that there's something more, that there's something far greater in this life than simply maintaining. I think that we want to forget that there's some deep, insatiable void within us that the humdrum of life's endless chatter will never fill. Like whispers in a vacuum or cries in empty fields, I feel we'd like to ignore the sense that our role here in this grand production exceeds that of passersby here for a brief stay or vacation, but we can't. No matter the amount of strain, we cannot shake the feeling that we owe something, some infinitely inadequate yet great contribution as a token of our gratitude for the chance to experience it all. And somewhere along the way, I think that we'll remember that our lives are instruments of creation and that we each have a distinct harmonizing note to contribute to its song. Mm. Thank you. That's my, <laughs> my applause. <laughs> snap. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Before we, we wrap up this conversation, tell me a little bit about what you're writing about now and definitely what mark you want to leave on Chapel Hill when you're not Poet Laureate anymore. Sure. Um, so right now... I have a few kind of, you know, what do you call it, irons in the fire. <laughs> um, one being I'm trying to create the right relationships to start a youth poetry series. So I'm in conversation with some different folks in community, um, folks who work at the Hargrave Center, one of my friends, um, Brenton Harrison, and some folks who work in um, public schools. And I want to have a youth poetry series where some of the gatherings are workshops, some of them are open mics. Um, some of them might just be opportunity for young people who who are creative, who who write to come together and, you know, fellowship and what have you. Um, and then I want to have those kind of culminate in a show, a youth poetry showcase um, where young people have an opportunity to kind of speak back to the adults in their lives, speak back to community and express themselves in a way. Um, yeah. And in in however they feel. Um, so that's one of the, the projects that I'm working on. And another um, is... Um, you know, some poems around um, kind of enlivening the memory of, of George Moses Horton, um, who was uh, an enslaved poet, um, African-American, um, who wrote poems and sold poems in an attempt to earn his freedom or to buy his purchase his freedom, um, ended up not working that way. But he what he did become one of uh, what's recognized as being the first um, black Southern published poet. Um, and so I'm working with um, uh, Chapel Hill's previous poet laureate, C.J. Suit, um, on a poem around that. And I continue to want to work on, you know, poems to kind of re-narrativize Chapel Hill. So I'm really interested in, you know, history. So I kind of want to fuse history and poetry. So those are some of the things I'm working on. Cortland Gilliam is the poet laureate for the town of Chapel Hill. He is pursuing his doctoral degree in the School of Education at Carolina, the same institution where he wore a noose around his neck in protest of a Confederate statue on campus called Silent Sam. Coming up, about dad time. 
My co-host Jeff DeBerry leads a heartfelt conversation with other dads on work life and home life, raising kids. You're listening to Do South. 